In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. As a boy, Alan J. Lynch was a severely bullied and aimless kid growing up in the industrial neighborhoods of Chicago's South Side. He went on to serve in the Army, received the Medal of Honor for the valor he displayed when he rushed to save three fallen comrades during a deadly firefight in Vietnam, and dedicated his life to helping his fellow veterans. Today, I talked to Alan about a story, which he shares in his recently published memoir, Zero to Hero, From Bullied Kid to Warrior. We begin our conversation discussing his childhood, when the bullying started, and how it affected his youth. Alan and then shares the aimlessness he had as a high school graduate and how he carried it with him after he signed up for the army and at first struggled to adapt to military life. We then discuss how Alan ended up in Vietnam, the best friend he lost there, and the harrowing scenario that earned him the Medal of Honor citation. Alan then shares how receiving the Medal of Honor put him on a path of service in helping fellow veterans heal from the wounds of war. And we end our conversation with a poignant discussion of Alan's own battle with PTSD and how his motto of others, not self, has helped him deal with it. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash zero to hero. Alan joins me now via clearcast.io. Okay. Alan Lynch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you just published a, a memoir of yours. It's called Zero to Hero, From Bullied Kid to Warrior. And it's about your experience as a child, but also leading up to your experience in Vietnam, where you received the Medal of Honor. Before we get to that, let's talk about your childhood, because this was a, I realize it's really interesting, because it's your talk, you grew up at a time like right after World War II. So it was an interesting time in American history. What was it like for you as a kid? Well, my, my childhood was, uh, it was really neat, especially, you know, in looking at it from today's point of view, where kids are kind of bubble wrapped. One of my first memories is walking to school, kindergarten, five blocks away, crossing a busy street and 111th Street in, in Roseland, Illinois, and being able to walk to and from school at five years old, playing with my friends, you know, uh, after school until the lights went out, playing games outside. There was no air conditioning. So, you know, all the windows were open. Most mothers didn't have jobs, so they were home. And so there was the kind of the mother underground so that uh, when the boys, when me and my friends were out doing stuff, there would always be this feeling of being watched from some window somewhere. So it was really, it was really kind of a neat time. And, and even in, uh, we moved to a trailer park in Homewood, Eli's Trailer Park. And it was the same thing. Everybody just, we, we played, we had fun. We had the run of the trailer park. We even crossed a, a real busy street. I think it was Lincoln, Lincoln Ave and went into a, crossed through a graveyard and into a woods into Bumtown one time. That's what we called it back then. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of adventures, a lot of stuff. We moved to Lake Eliza, Indiana and had the run of the woods. I could, 
you know, like seven, eight years old, I could take a 410 shotgun, go out into the woods and hunt squirrels and rabbit. And, you know, it was, it was a magic time to be a kid. And it, it was a time when boys could just be boys. Another huge part of your childhood was your father who served in the military during World War II. He seemed like he had a big influence on you as a young man. He did. My dad was was one of these guys. He was, of course, raised during the Depression, the, the real Depression, where they they worried about food and heat and clothing and all of this stuff. And uh, I was raised on Depression stories of, you know, uh, kicking coal off a freight car so they could heat their apartment at night. And, you know, uh, when the electricity was turned off, how they were able to turn it back on. So he was a kind of a fix-it man. Uh, we never had a lot of money growing up, so if there had, if the house needed repair, we did it. And of course, I, being the boy, was the helper. And my dad gave me that sense of, I can fix anything, I can do anything. Did your dad serve in World War II? He never went overseas. He was a dog handler. Gave me a love of dogs and. I trained my, uh, when I was a kid, one of my only friends was my dog, Duke, and I trained him a little bit and taught him a lot of tricks because of, you know, my dad's influence and how to train a dog properly and so on. So, but when growing up, did your, was there like a military ethos in your family? Like, was there an idea that, you know, if you were a young man, if you were a boy, like you were supposed to serve in the military at some point, or was that not really a thing? I was woke up to Reveille every morning. My, my my dad would come in and whistle reveille. So, and, and uh, that was at 5.30, religiously. And, and my dad had this thing of, when if my dad was up, everyone was up. And of course, being a traditional family back in, in the 50s, my dad would, would leave for work about 6.15, 6.30. My mother would get up and cook him breakfast. And of course, I would be up and have breakfast with my dad. And if I had school, I'd get ready for school. And when we were out in Indiana, I had chores. So when breakfast was done, my dad went to work. I went out to the garden. I weeded the garden, cut the grass and all that. So there was this kind, there was kind of a, it wasn't a, you have to join the military kind of thing, but it was very clear that my dad was in charge. It was very clear that I was expected to do certain things every day. And, you know, listening to my uncles talk about their time in the Navy, my dad's time in the Army Air Corps, there was a real feeling of that was something I was going to, I was going to have to do in my future. When you were a young kid, like you grew up in a decidedly working class family. Were, did you have high ambitions as a kid or was you, your goal just like get a steady paying job after you graduated high school? What, what was that like for you? I had very little ambition. I think what, what happened was when I was, when I was bullied, it kind of just sucked the life right out of me. And all I wanted to do when I was in high school was get out. And I, I did not want to go to summer school again. I, I had to go because I failed algebra my freshman year. So I just basically, I wanted to get through high school being white paint. You know, you're kind of, it's kind of there. You know, it's there, but you don't really recognize it. And. So basically it was get out of the, get out of high school, get a job somewhere and wait to get drafted. And then I decided, well, I'll just enlist. Well, let's talk about the bowling. You mentioned that because that was a big part of your story. When did that start happening to you when you were a kid? Fourth grade, three kids came to class. I don't know why they took an instant dislike to me, but they did. And my mother uh, was, was quite a pacifist. She, had me convinced. I don't know what it is with moms, but everything has to do with you can knock out an eye. 
So, you know, I had this idea that if I hit somebody really hard, the eye would pop out. And and it was the idea of, you know, how would you feel if you hurt somebody? How would you feel if you knocked out an eye or hurt somebody like that or whatever? And so I became afraid of hurting somebody. And, you know, when you give fear a place inside of you, it grows like a cancer and it grew inside of me. And I became afraid not only of hurting, but of getting hurt. Now, the funny thing was, is as was getting beat up, my eye wasn't popping out, you know, and my teeth weren't falling out and my jaw was never broken and it was hit plenty of times, but it never seemed to register with me that, you know, I should hit back. And so I didn't. And they made my life from fourth grade all the way through eighth grade a living hell. Did it get better after eighth grade? You know, we, we moved to high school. Uh, we moved to Dalton, Illinois, and... It got a lot better because I was in a different school, but I, you know, it's kind of one of those things of no matter where you go, there you are. So the kid that was bullied in grade school and junior high was the same kid that went to this brand new high school. And it wasn't long before my cover got got pulled. And I basically, I, I confronted a kid, he stood up and I stood down. I just walked away from him right in front of the whole lunchroom. And so I was right back to being that that kid again. And uh, though the bullying wasn't as bad, there was there was enough of it. There was some, you know, of course, every class has its bullies. And uh, they found me and a couple of my friends to pick on. And I ended up having a couple of fights in high school. I, I lost them both, but at least I fought. What did your so your mom was the pacifist? What did your dad think about it? My My dad was not happy with me. Uh, he wanted me to punch him. His whole thing was when you push, you push back. When when somebody pushes you, punch him in the nose. Someone messes with you, you get into a fight, you fight him. Even if you lose and you bloody him, they're not they're they're going to think twice about fighting you again. Uh, so he was not he was not at all happy with me. I, I kind of think he wasn't very proud of me when I was in grade school and high school and being bullied and all that. And so I imagine that affected you for a good deal of time, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, bullying takes away your self-image. It destroys it. And and if and a lot of parents don't know, a lot of parents don't know that what they feel about their kids comes through. If I would tell my dad as an example that I, you weren't very proud of me, he would go, oh, I was very proud of you. You were a wonderful kid. But he wasn't. He wasn't because I was the kid that was getting picked on. I was the kid that had few friends. I was the kid that, you know, they kept asking me, why couldn't I be like one of my aunts or my uncles? So it it did affect me. It affected me greatly. It just uh, almost destroyed me. So you spent high school just ready, you know, just getting ready to get out of high school and get out of town. You decided to join the military. Why did you sign up? Was it just to get out of, just do something different? Well, I knew I was going to get drafted. When I graduated in, in 1964, there was only a couple places you could go. You could go to college or trade school and get a deferment, or you got drafted. That was it. Well, I wasn't interested in anything. I wasn't interested in cars. I wasn't interested in getting my hands dirty. And, you know, I certainly didn't have the grades to go to college. So I knew I was going to get drafted. So I decided I'm going to take control of my life and enlist. So I enlisted in the Army, and I was going to be a personnel specialist. And that didn't work out so well. Why didn't it work out so well? They... uh now, they, they offered me OCS, uh, Officer Candidate School, 
and I so I had to change my my MOS, my military occupational specialty, from clerk typist to infantry, and that set me up, of course, to go to OCS infantry OCS. And then uh, when I when I got out of that, I went to uh, I went to Germany, and then I volunteered for Vietnam from there. And what did your parents think when you when you signed up with the military? Well, my dad was happy. My mother, not so much. <laughs> my dad was, you know, I think my dad had this attitude of finally he's going to become a man because that's what the military does. It will take raw material and make you a man. And my mother, of course, was losing her little boy that, she, you know, they basically thought that I'd last about three seconds in the military. I mean, I'm here I am. I'm in a barracks with a bunch of other guys. I've been bullied all my life. How is this going to work out? So they were pretty much afraid. I know my mom was was not very happy at all. And you so you mentioned yeah you did OCS, but that didn't really pan out for you. What what do you think happened there? Well, I you know I, it was another one of those. No matter where you go, there you are. I was I went through basic training, a leadership school, and advanced infantry training. I was a squad leader in basic and a squad leader in AIT. Went through that harassment, but OCS. The harassment is a lot different, and it's it, it's it makes uh, basic training and advanced infantry look relatively easy. And I started thinking that you know there this was a personal thing that the TAC officers were were out to get me personally, which wasn't true. And so, ba- basically, taking everything so personally, my morale went down, and I was just that that kid again. So I I did a drop one request. And did you like did you feel disappointed in yourself that you did that or yeah like, oh man I just I screwed this up again yeah it was well there here's another failure so far I failed everything except basic and AIT so you, you know, it was just yeah I was on that that track you know and it was just well I'm a dud right. that's all I am I'm just I'm a dud. You're a zero. That's the zero yeah. part of the story. Well, yeah. so you drop OCS. You went to Germany. What were you doing there? Like, were you, did you think that you were going to end up in Vietnam eventually? And you just thought this is going to be my little, I don't know, a a respite before that. What was the the idea about going to Germany? I went, I went to Germany. I was, uh, I was just basically sent there and I thought Germany would just be my last duty station. I'd do my time in Germany. And in 1967, uh, my three years would be up and I'd go home. And that wasn't the case. I didn't like being cold. And in Germany, we did a lot of field training exercises out in the wintertime. And I got frostbite on my feet during one of those, those training exercises. And I was offered an opportunity to re-enlist. I was offered some money, a change of duty. And I was starting to like the Army. I was really starting to like it. It was that there's just something about being in a part of a team and being with a bunch of guys that are doing the same thing and you're learning to trust each other. And so in the back of my mind, I, I was kind of thinking this might be what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And so I reenlisted and I ended up going to Berlin and I was assigned to a mortar platoon and not what I wanted to do. And so, again, I, being immature, I copped a bad attitude. I ended up getting uh, two Article 15s. Those are uh, non-judicial punishments. My first one was because I smarted off to my section sergeant and told him exactly, in no uncertain terms, what I, what I thought of him. And that cost me a, a 
15-day confined to the barracks, 15 days of extra duty, seven days pay in a suspended bus to private E3. And then I got a second Article 15 for going AWOL to help a buddy that got some rather bad news from home. And it was right about that time that Vietnam was really starting to heat up and a lot of my friends were getting levied for Vietnam and all of that. I still had that stink of cowardice on me. I, I really needed to prove myself to myself. I had I'd come a long way. You know, I was doing a lot of things. For the first time in my life, I had I had pretty good friends. But I, I just really felt the need to test myself. And Vietnam was the event of my generation. So I volunteered. You volunteered? You didn't get drafted for it. You didn't get no, sent there. No. I, I volunteered for the 1st Cavalry Division. When I, I got everything I wanted, I wanted infantry, I wanted the first cav, and I got all of it in spades. I mean, what did you know about Vietnam before you signed up? Not a lot. I mean, I knew I could, I was really good at Jaga. In fact, that was the only class I, I did well on in high school, so I knew where it was. A lot of my friends were getting, getting drafted. When I was in OCS, the first cavalry was, was deployed. By the time I had gotten to Germany, the Battle of the Eye Drang had already been fought. Vietnam was now becoming a major engagement. You know, it was a war. There were levies coming down all the time. You know, people that had time and service and all that to do, to spend a year in Vietnam being, being levied for it. And I just, I just needed to be a part of it. So you got sent to Vietnam. Where did you serve there? Central Highlands. It was a place called uh, Binh Dinh Province. It was the rice bowl of Vietnam. And, and what was your role? You had, you took on several roles while you were there, right? Yeah, I uh, I started off carrying a um, what they called an XM seventy nine. It was experimental model. It was an M sixteen with an M seventy nine grenade launcher underneath. Now it's called the M two hundred three grenade launcher. It's the same thing, but I carried that, and then I realized that that was a real heavy load to carry. I carried thirty five rounds of HE, some some white phosphorus, Willie Peter, some shotgun rounds, smoke. And then I carried 35 magazines for the M16. I didn't want to run out of ammunition. After about a month and a half of carrying that, I was able to get rid of it and just go to an M16. For the first several months, I was nothing. I was a grunt. I was just a, a spec four, part of a squad. Then in November, I got the opportunity. Was late November, I got the opportunity to become a, a radio telephone operator in RTO. What year? This was 1967. 1967. 1967. So you got there. You were there for how long? Were you there in Vietnam? I got there uh, May 31st, 1967. I left June 1st, 1968. And I mean, what were the conditions like when you? I mean, because sometimes you described Vietnam as kind of sounded kind of nice, right? You had these like pristine beaches and there's coconuts, <laughs> but then also was also ter- sounded terrible at the same time. Yeah, it it, it was a it was a paradox. In 1967, we were still out to win the war. At least that's what we thought. I wasn't there. I think it was about a month and the Vietnamese had their national elections. We were pulled out of the field and back to LZ English. So a lot of us thought that we were actually seeing an American democracy, you know, forming right before our eyes. And we were like the uh, the French during the American, you know, um, War of Independence. You know, we were we were there to help. Little did we know, and I didn't discover this until I started studying Vietnam years later, that, that the Vietnam election was was rigged, that it was basically a war that President Johnson had no intention of really winning. He didn't have the, 
the, the stones to go in and actually, you know, fight to win. So he was basically wasting us. Well, we didn't know that in 67. We controlled our area of operation, the, the Bongsong plane. We had very, we had a lot of contact, but we won every battle. It was, you know, we were overpowering the enemy all the time. We were fighting both the NVA, North Vietnamese Army, and the Viet Cong. And we basically, you know, I wrote home, I remember to my mom and dad that we own, we own the area. You know, we did our ambushes and our, all of that stuff that you do, but they would run from us because we had such tremendous support. And um, you talk about a situation where you, you actually, you started making some good friends during Vietnam. You made one really good friend, but you lost him quickly. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, his name was Jerry Bryans. And uh, we came in country together. Uh, Jerry was one of those guys that uh, if we were down on our luck, if we, you know, had no sea rations or we were running out of cigarettes and he had one, he'd share it. He was just, he was a good, he was just a good guy, real nice guy. And uh, when he, he was from Schulzburg, Wisconsin, and he told the story of uh, how he was a kid. He was out farming. He was a farmer. He was out on his tractor and lightning struck him and almost killed him, ended up in the hospital. And then, you know, I guess a couple, a year later or so, he got kicked in the head by a horse, ended up back in the hospital. And he almost died twice. And he said, you know, three strikes and you're out. He says, I know if something happens here, I'm going to probably not survive it. But he would say it and tell it in such a funny way, would just have us in stitches. And of course, with every story, he added a little bit to it. Well, we were on a, on a, uh, we were up in uh, Kantum province and we were in an area that looked a lot like Wisconsin. And we had had lunch together. We were talking about, you know, getting, going fishing. We got back to the world and all that. And we started to move down the trail. Our point men just hadn't gone probably 50 meters. And our point men came back and signaled that there was movement and the LT went running up and Jerry got behind a tree. I got behind a stump and this guy, I think I call him Fred in the book, got behind a bush. He was our M60 machine gunner. Our real gunner was on R&R. And so he had been newly assigned. I think he came in with us or shortly after us, but he had a real bad attitude. He was kind of a kid from New York real smart mouth. We didn't know how lazy it was until the machine gun jammed, but Lieutenant came running back and he, you know, called ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. They're friendly. Unbeknownst to us, the special forces were running with uh, some mountain yards in the area. We call them uh, CIDG, civilian and indigenous personnel. So after yelling ceasefire three times, Jerry and I stood up and Fred shot him in the chest with the machine gun, which immediately jammed because it was so dirty. Jerry went down like a stone. He ended up dying on the helicopter, the medevac that came in. They didn't tell me that for a few days because I, I threatened to kill him if Jerry died. So they gave it time to cool down. And then over the course of a few days, the, a lot of my, my friends came up and talked about what a great guy Jerry was and all of that. And, you know, how sad it would be that if, you know, something happened to Jerry, I think everybody knew but me that, you know, three families would be destroyed. The guy that Jerry's family, my family, and the guy that that shot him. When I found out Jerry was dead, I forget who it was, probably probably saved me, uh, came up and had a nice 
chat with me because I was by myself having a cigarette. And he said, you know, Fred's going to have to live with the fact that he killed one of our own. And that kind of hit me. And so I, I didn't do anything. And I told him I wasn't going to do anything, but he was ostracized. Uh, we didn't um, accept him too easily back into the, you know, into the fold. He earned his way back in. And when I left Vietnam, he had made sergeant, and I think he was a squad leader. I'd, I'd like to think that he lived a good life in replacement for the life he took. I, that's what I'm hoping. And how did that moment influence the rest of your experience in Vietnam? I never, I didn't make a lot of friends after that. Um, I had a lot of acquaintances. I was friendly, but I never got close to anybody. I still, I can't, I can't, I have a hard time getting close to people. I just, it's very difficult to do that. It seems it affected me in a way that, you know, you, you make, you make friends with someone and they get killed, they die. And that, that, that was kind of, that's taken me a lot of years to deal with. I, you know, the, the thing is now I know that I have the issue. So I, I try real hard to, you know, be a little bit more friendly than probably I normally would, but still it's difficult to do it. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. 
And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So for most of your life, you've been the zero kid that got bullied, no ambition, uh, smarted off to superiors, uh, would get busted down back to private first class. Uh, But then you had this moment where you had the decision to go from a zero to hero. And this is the scenario, the situation where you, where it eventually earned you the Medal of Honor. Can you walk us through that situation, that that scenario? Sure. Um, we had been up in Doctel, and I think about the middle of De- middle of November, we got taken back to join the Battle of of Tam Quan. And for my part, I was I was now a, a an RTL radio telephone operator. And carried a Perk 25 on my back, along with a basic load of ammunition and all that. But I was kind of like my LT shadow. And uh, I got the day of the incident, the day of the action, we got a brand new lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Donald Sutherland. Very courageous guy. I only knew him for like four hours. But in, it, what I found out, what I, what I did know until I started writing the book, is that he pretty much demanded to go out with the unit the day we are assaulted in, he talked to our captain, Captain Orsini, and he said, look, I want to go. I want to do this. I want to be a part of this. Give me the platoon. So he got second platoon. I became his RTO and his shadow. And is it was right after we had, you know, a break for, for Noon Chow. And we started moving in to relieve A company and hit the enemy from the side, from the flank. And we walked into an ambush. It was a... Um, like a box, like a three-sided box. We walked right into the middle of it and all hell broke loose. And the Lieutenant ran up me along with him to the front to see what was happening. About that time we were taking fire, sending, you know, traffic back to, you know, our, our, our company commander, letting them know what was going on. And we were taking fire from our flank and, and so on. 
Wilhelm, who was walking, one of the point men came running back, got shot about halfway to us. I went out and I got him. And uh, I think a medic came out, as I recall, to help us out. And we got him back to our lines. And he said that Casares had gotten shot in both shins and couldn't, couldn't walk, couldn't move. So I asked the LT if I could drop my radio and go out and get him, which I, I went out there with the intention of getting him and coming back and getting a medevac. Well, that wasn't the case. As soon as I got in the ditch and started doing what I had to do, all hell broke loose again. A lot of fire came down. And just as I thought, well, I'm going to put him on my back and then I'm going to carry him out, Joe Esparza came running across and got shot pretty far from us, but close enough to me so I could get him. So I ran out and I got him and got him back in the ditch. And there we stayed. Unbeknownst to me at the time, our company had pulled back because they had taken such heavy, heavy fire. And they led one rescue mission to try to get to us. During that rescue mission, Lieutenant Sutherland got shot in the head and died. Another guy got wounded, so they pulled back again. They tried another time to get to us. And again, that didn't work. Then finally, an APC, Armored Personnel Carrier, was was sent over. They were going to back it up to our position, drop the back ramp, and then we could load in and go away. We saw the APC pull up to us, lower its ramp, and then it got hit with an RPG. And it was like, are you kidding me? We were literally feet away from being rescued. And when the RPG hit the, hit the track, my, my captain uh, Orsini was blown out of the, the, the hurt turret, the uh, commander's hatch. And ended up being severely wounded. So they pulled back, and that was the last time they tried to get to us. They then called in continuous artillery and airstrikes. And that went on for for a long time. In the meantime, we were, you know, killing a lot of Viet Cong and NVA and whoever was coming within, you know, place where we could get them. And then it got really quiet. And so I thought it was time now to, to see what we could do. So I went up and I made sure there was no VC working in the area. And when I realized it was safe and had checked a couple of hooches and some things, I, I moved, I moved, I think, Casares first and got him to a, a place. Then I went back and I got Esparza and moved him to an area. And then I was going to just start, you know, doing a little bit of concentric, you know, trying to find our guys. And I didn't go maybe a hundred meters and there they were. And they called to me. We went back and got the wounded and we all got medevac together. So how how long were you guys pinned down? You know, the citation and some of the stuff had had like two hours. I think we were there for about four. It was it was right after child when we got in and it was dark when we got out. So we were there a long time. Yeah. And it sounds like like you you weren't even like really thinking about like like there wasn't like a point of sitting. You just decide that there's some guys out there that need my help. I'm gonna go out there and do it. Like what was going through yeah. your mind? You just is that what you were just thinking? I'm just gonna I gotta go help my buddies. Yeah. You, you know, you're you're trained in, in, in basic and in, in AIT, and it's the, the warrior ethos that you never leave your wounded. But I, I've been asked this question a lot, and, and I, over the years, as I've gotten a lot older, I've become more reflective. And I, I, think, I think the reason that I did what I did was because of the upbringing that I had. My mother and dad, my grandfather and grandmother, my whole family was were made up of people who knew how to sacrifice, not only for their family, 
you know, my dad sometimes worked three jobs, you know, because he didn't think my mother should have to work. You know, she had a tough enough job raising my sister and I. My grandmother and grandfather used to take food and clothing to poor people, you know, back in the 50s and early 60s. My mother often took in laundry and prepared meals for people in the neighborhood and such that were sick. So this was how I was raised. And then you have your drill sergeants that tell you you don't leave your wounded. They, you know, and they they inspire you to, you know, that's what we don't do. And they do that by, you know, if you fall out on a run, if you let somebody fall out on a run or, you know, during PT and you don't help them out, then you do a lot more. So there's kind of that negative reinforcement. So I think when when that happened, there was no time to think or to act. There was no time to think. You just had had to do what I had to do. And, and after you did it, did you like? Were you thinking like, "Wow, that was a that was a pretty crazy thing that I went through." Like that was that's something that worthy of the Medal of Honor. Were you just like, oh, "I just got to go on." That was just part of my job. Now on to the next thing. That's it. I you know, I don't. I really don't believe at this point that I deserved the Medal of Honor. I was put in for it by my peers. I've always felt that I, as a result of that, getting that medal, that I owed something and I had to give something back, which is why I devoted my life to veterans. But, you know, I, I, I look at people that did so much more than me that, you know, got a bronze star or a distinguished service cross or a silver star. And I, I go, you know, how did, how did I get this? And, you know, it's kind of, even when I was going through a lot of stuff, it, the, the one thing in the back of my mind was that I had to, I had to now earn it. There, there's a scene in Saving Private Ryan where Tom Hanks is the captain is shot and Private Ryan runs up to him and he, he looks at him and he says, earn this. And that's kind of how I felt. So yeah, that changed your life. And as you said, like you spent the rest of your, your, your life really yeah. trying to earn that. So talk about what, it, how did you, how did you go about earning your medal of honor in your mind? Well, it, it, it uh, I started as a veterans benefits concert, a VA hospital and uh, worked with returning Vietnam veterans. I had ended up doing a couple of things there. I, I worked in a drug unit. Some of our guys in the seventies were coming back hooked on various drugs. And so I, I did that. The more I got into veterans benefits work, I became a veterans benefits counselor and I started filing claims for veterans and helping them with appeals. And I really started to like that. Then I became chief ambulatory care at the North Chicago, now the level federal medical center. And I really worked hard to, to make sure that veterans got what they deserved. But the biggest thing was when I became a member of the executive director of the Vietnam Veterans Leadership Program and started working with my brother veterans and getting them jobs and, and helping them to, you know, get through the, I, the the big unemployment that we had back just at, in the 70s and 80s. And then um, the best thing, the best thing, and something that I turned out to be really exceptional at was as a uh, Vietnam Veterans of America service officer. And I did that through the uh, Illinois Attorney General's office. They only let me work appeals. And a lawyer taught me how to write legally. And she was, she was really good with the red pen. And I took, I, my caseload was nothing but VA appeals. I didn't cherry pick. I worked really hard to get the hardest cases I could find. And I won most of them. 
And I probably, well, I've made millions of dollars for veterans in compensation. I, I worked in uh, my, the first attorney general I worked for, Neil Hardigan, and I, we went to Washington and lobbied for judicial review of VA claims with Vietnam Veterans of America. And so I was, I'm, I'm very, very proud of that. And then after I retired in 2005, we, we formed the uh, Lynch Foundation to help veterans that, uh, of our current war that were coming home that were falling through the cracks. And, and now our program is now part of Operation Support Our Troops America, which we now have care packages we send overseas. We work with Gold Star families and what we call Leap of Faith. And then we have the Lynch program that helps veterans with having financial difficulty. So, yeah, you've been doing a lot to turn that metal in, in your mind and uh, helping your, your fellow veterans. But you also talk about in the book, like while you were helping veterans with different problems, not only financial, career, drug problems, but you're helping them with their, their problems with PTSD and those emotional problems of trying to figure out, sort of go through the, the stuff that they went through psychologically during the war. But you yourself started experiencing PTSD during this. When did that start happening and how did it manifest itself? 1973 was the summer of 1973. It was the first time that I ever had a dive on the floor startle reaction. It was hot. I had just got off the bus from work. I was walking home about about three blocks. I was soaking wet when I got home. It was hot. It was humid. Got into the house and got into some dry clothes. I sat down to dinner. There was a flash of lightning and the roll of thunder, and I was on the floor. And uh, my wife said that I got a strange look in my face and ended up on the floor and started with a bad startle reaction. Sudden noises would just, you know, make me duck. And sometimes I was at one event where they fired a a Civil War cannon. I ended up on my in, in my suit, you know, diving on into the mud. But then I had started having intrusive thoughts and anger and, you know, the vivid thoughts of, of Vietnam, uh, a smell would set me off, uh, heat, different things, smells, uh, a few nightmares, suicidal ideation, the whole nine yards. And it, and it came in waves. I would have times when it would be fine and I would have a normal month, years, you know, of not much happening. And then something would set me off and I'd get very depressed and angry and reclusive and drink way too much and, you know, all the, all the negative stuff. And, and when did you start, you know, realize that you got to do something about this? At what point? It was in the early nineties. I had been doing a lot of work with, with veterans, uh, filing a lot of claims. Uh, and what would happen is I would read the medical records on some of the appeals that I would be fighting. And that would bring back even more vivid memories because you're reading about somebody that was in combat. And I would go, my gosh, this is exactly what, what I did. This is where I was. This is what I went through. And so that would bring trigger memories. So eventually I, I realized I needed to get help and things were not going good at home. And I was kind of a, well, I was a jerk. I could put that in a lot stronger terms, but I won't. And it was made very clear to me that I need to get some help. So I went to uh, the Evanston Vet Center in Chicago. I started seeing Betsy Tolstead, who was the uh, psychologist there. She wanted to put me on medication, and I told her no. I had been worked in a VA hospital. I saw what the VA does with medications. So I said, no, you either fix me 
give me the tools. I'll work hard. I'll do everything you say. I'm, I'm in it to win it. I'm not, not here to play games. I said, but I'm not going on medication. So we worked. And the first time I saw her was for a few couple of years, I think two, three years. And she pretty much, she helped me out. She, she actually gave me my first good Christmas since Vietnam. I used to go into a deep depression around Thanksgiving and it wouldn't end until March, April, sometimes longer. And in therapy, we talked about, you know, some of the things that, that were really bothering me. And one was the death of my, my buddy, Jerry. And she gave me an assignment to find his grave and to film it. So I went out and I bought a little camera, a little movie camera. And I went out and I found his grave, which took me the better part of a day. I finally found out where he was buried. And uh, I filmed that. I talked to him, told him what was going on in my life and all of that. Left my business card on his gravestone and came home. And in, in the meantime, my, my wife had cooked dinner and beef stroganoff was her, was and is her, her go-to dish. She's really good at cooking it. Each of my kids uh, told me what mattered most to them. And then I told them about Jerry. Uh, my youngest son, Brian, was named after him. I didn't know, you know, in, in the army, we go by last name. So all I knew by was Brian's. So my, my son's name, my last son's name is Brian. And he was named after and I explained why. And I told him about Jerry. And it was like I had the best Christmas. Yeah, I mean, you were able to start treating that wound that you you had. Yeah, uh, and I'm at, is it still ongoing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm able to handle it a lot better, but um, yeah, it's you know, obviously, it's kind of raw still. No, of course. One thing that struck me, something you you wrote about, and we've talked about it too on this podcast, this, this sort of ethos that you grew up with, thanks to your parents, your mom, your dad grandparents and something that's helped you a lot this idea and i love this mantra it's others not self how has that helped you not only you know i mean that's kind of what helped made you do the thing that that you got the citation for the medal of honor but it seems like it's the thing that's been therapeutic for you after the war this is idea of others not self yeah it 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 actually it saved my life I was on a very bad path and it was, it's one of those, you know, it's, it's like a guy drowning in, in, a, in knee deep water. It was right there, right in front of me, my whole life. And I didn't see it. What, what PTSD does to us is it forces us to dwell in upon ourselves. We become almost like a black, emo, like a, like an emotional black hole. And I can tell you the way my, my friends and I talked about it. It was my PTSD won't let me. My PTSD, we own it. I had nightmares last night. I, I, my, my intrusive thoughts, my this, my that. And, and, and it's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about what I'm going through. Well, at the worst possible time in my life, I had to focus on somebody else and not me. My, my dad got terminal lung cancer. And spent a year dying. And so for that year, it was, you know, at the end, at, at the end of the workday, go to the hospital, 
during the weekend, go down and give my mom a break because she was, she was taking care of him. And my sister was, you know, just a few doors down, but they were both being run ragged by him because he was having so many issues and so many problems with the lung cancer. And so I would go there on the weekends and stay overnight. Sometimes I'd go there, you know, take a day off work and go on a Wednesday and come home on a Thursday. So I was totally focused on my dad. My symptoms didn't go away, but they just lessened to where they were just very manageable. A couple of years later, my after my dad passed, my mother suffered a massive stroke and ended up I ended up going to the nursing home to see her, you know, when she was close, I would go with sometimes during the week and every weekend I would go see her and again, I was concentrating on my mom, I was concentrating on on seeing her. The symptoms mitigated and became a lot less. And by accident it kind of hit me. Um Boy, when I was taking care of my parents, I wasn't having a lot of symptoms going on. So, and again, it's kind of this one of these serendipity things. I was at a rotary. I think I was given a talk there. And one of their things is not self, others or others, not self, something like that. Well, I couldn't remember exactly what it was. So I thought, that's it. That's the key. If I focus on the needs of other people and I put them first, then my situation, my PTSD is no longer the total focus of my life. It's other people. And so I put that on my challenge coin, others, not self. And I put that in my pocket. So when I start getting into that pity, poor me mode and, you know, my PTSD, and I even try now not to use any ownership of it. I, I, I view it almost as, well, I do view it as the enemy. It's like the Viet Cong. It's like the NVA, and I'll be damned if it's going to win. So I fight it like that. I, I, that's why I'm, you know, I do what I do with, uh, with the foundation and do other things. And the first person I put first was my wife and my kids and my grandkids. No, I, I love that, that mantra, others not self, because I've seen that in my own life. You know, I've, I don't have PTSD, but whenever I get down on myself and feeling down, as soon as I shift my focus away from myself, like things and focus on others, it just, it just goes away. And it, it's amazing what that can do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you, it, it just, I've been, um, a lot of, a lot of veteran friends that I have, I, I, I let them know that's for me, that was the key. It may not work for them, but, but for me, that's, that's the big key. Well, Alan, this has been a, a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book, Zero to Hero? I know they sell it on Amazon. I've heard uh, some people have uh, found it at Borders. You know, I uh, I know it's on Amazon. And, and where can people go to learn more about your foundations? They can go to Operation Support Our Troops America. They can Google that or just go OSOT-America. Just type it into their search engine and that'll tell you all about what we do. Well, fantastic. Alan Lynch, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. My guest today was Alan Lynch. He's the author of the book, Zero to Hero. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his Veterans Foundation at ajlynchfoundation.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash zero to hero. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find all of our podcast archives. We've got over 500 there. And we also got thousands of articles about personal finance, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Thank you.